Thank you for listening to the Well-Managed Hive. I'm your host, Lewis Cobble. I'm an apiary inspector with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Uh, welcome to Season 1, Episode 1. I'm speaking with Dr. Jamie Ellis today from University of Florida. I hope you'll enjoy this inaugural episode. All right, my guest today is the Gahan Endowed Professor of Entomology in the Department of Entomology and Nematology at the University of Florida. He has responsibilities in extension, instruction, and research related to honeybees. He created the University of Florida, South Florida, and Caribbean Bee Colleges, as well as the University of Florida Master Beekeeper Program. He supervises PhD and master's students in addition to offering an online course in apiculture. He and his team conduct research projects in the fields of honeybee husbandry, conservation and ecology, and integrated crop pollination. Uh, the guest today is the University of Florida bee guy, Dr. Jamie Ellis. Good morning, Dr. Ellis. Thank you for uh, hey. uh, chiming in. Yeah, sure. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be on your podcast. <laughs> this is uh, season one, episode one. So <laughs> this is my first. <laughs> well, I'll do my best to be a good, a good guest to, to lead out the gate. <laughs> Fair enough. So I saw your talk uh, on what is killing the bees at the uh, Eastern Apicultural Society meeting in 2018 in, in Hampton Roads, Virginia, and I sure. I I meant to. Uh, check in with you there and give you either a, a high five or a pat on the back or whatever's appropriate <laughs> there. Cause I thought you were hitting exactly the right notes. And, um, well, good. I was happy to find, uh, the Irish beekeepers webinar that you did. I think it was a very similar talk. Mm -hmm. It was. Yep. Yeah. And so, um, I guess I I'm kind of tired of the doom and gloom, uh, story around honeybees and, uh, everyone's talking about the uh, gross losses instead of net losses. So, can you talk about that? Yeah. So let me let me just give you a little bit of background. And you know, in 2006 is when I got hired, and in it in August of 2006, and in November of 2006 is when the first episode of bee losses that ultimately became colony collapse disorder and the hysteria. That is when that happened. Just a few months after I got hired, and it happened. In Florida, and I'll admit that for the next ten or so years, you know, I feel like we all became talking heads. Right? Bees are dying, pesticides are killing bees. We're right. all going to starve to death. And 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 I'm not at all belittling the loss issue, not not at all. But what I wanted to do is start looking at the numbers that were being published and kind of think through them. And I was starting to see you know, some interesting trends. And, and I wasn't the only one. Other people were finding and noting these things as well. And so ultimately, all of that is kind of what gave birth to that talk that you're referencing. I've given that talk now, you know, dozens upon dozens of times, maybe over 100 times now, really all around the world. And it's kind of starting to resonate. It's just based on this idea that, yes, we have high losses every year. But what we're not being told is that those losses are gross losses, not actually net changes in bees. If you look at the national average, I think we're losing about 40% of our colonies mm -hmm. a year. Well, that's that's usually where the message stops, right? That's what the press says. That's what scientists are saying, et cetera. But if you look back in 2006, when we had about two and a half, 2.7 million colonies, if we were losing 40% of our colonies a year, we'd have fewer than 100,000 colonies left. And that's just not the case. So I wanted to know more about what the story was, and that's kind of what gave birth to this whole talk and, and kind of my, my angle on bee losses. 
Yeah, so I completely agree, and I find that at least uh, when I'm telling this story, so I'm usually telling this story at you know to uh, folks who don't understand beekeeping, you know, just to the general public, like mm-hmm. at a fair or something. And then they ask, sure. well, how is, uh, how is the bee population doing? And, um, say, well, it's in my opinion, it really depends on the beekeeper, right? So the beekeepers that I yeah. see that are kind of following best management practices, they're doing okay. Um, and so it's really kind of highly variable. And the other thing I say is, listen, as long as people are able to make money keeping bees, we're going to have bees. There's no, I don't think bees are going anywhere as long as they're profitable. And that's another point that I think that some people miss. And and they sometimes get some weird looks when I say stuff like that. I mean, uh, so how is your message? How is, how is your message being received? Yeah. You know, it's funny when I, when I, I rarely do press interviews anymore because I'm a little tired of the spin that they've put on everything. But with that said, when I end up speaking with someone from the from the press or from the media or even giving talks, it's quite a surprise to people the message that I'm giving. Like, yeah, we have high gross loss rates, but we've actually averaged a net increase of over 1% a year over the last decade. So even though we're having 40%, quote, losses, we've ended the year with more bees than we started the year with. And they're like, so you're telling me bees aren't dying? I'm like, no, they are dying, but beekeepers are doing what it takes to recover those losses and actually end up with a net increase. And they're like, well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because, you know, I'm not a businessman, so I'll I'll put this out there on the front end, but it's possible that because honey prices and pollination prices are reasonable. They're not amazing, but they're reasonable. And as a result, the the demand for bees is great, and beekeepers find a way to make more bees. Now, a, a great question is, is this sustainable, right? Can beekeepers continue to lose 40% of their colonies split what they've got left and recover, you know, over over what they lost, is, is this sustainable? You know, and that's where the real message is that I think is important. So I get I get really weird looks when I start talking about this and mention that we actually have more bees now than we've had in the last twenty five years. People seem completely confused by that. But you know, usually <laughs> when I explain the, the the gross versus net discussion, they'll go, Well gosh, that, that kind of makes sense. And just to preempt a question that you may ask, you know, it, it kind of goes like this. If you have 100 colonies, statistically, you're going to lose 40 of them if, mm-hmm. if you are the average you know, beekeeper across the U.S. So I've lost 40%. So I've got 60. With these 60, I split and recover 41. So with a gross loss rate of 40%, I had a net increase of one. I, I ended the year with 101 colonies, even though I started it with 100. And so that's how that's what our industry is doing because of the economics. I'm not saying that people are making money hand over foot. I'm certainly not suggesting that. But I'm saying because of the economics and the demand for bees, beekeepers are finding a way to split and recover those losses. We could, of course, argue that if we didn't have 40 percent gross losses, beekeeping would be far more sustainable and profitable. And I'm, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. But what I'm saying is the reason we haven't seen you know, massive pollination decline and massive increase in food prices is because beekeepers have been working their rear ends off to keep up with these losses. All right. They're good at what they do and they're resilient. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're and, hard workers. Right. I mean, beekeeping is hard. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah. So I agree. I, when I kind of tell that story, I do get some really crooked eyebrows. They look so confused mm-hmm. and like, I'm kind of disappointed 
that the story isn't 100% doom and gloom. I mean, that, sure. I feel like that's kind of what people want to hear, but I'm, I'm trying to, it's like, oh, we do? There's no doubt. We have bee health challenges. But I think a lot of the, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, a lot of the bee health challenges that I see, I think we can overcome with with good good management practices, uh, especially the, the stuff that I see. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But sure, I mean, I, incidentally, I I certainly agree with you. One of the exciting things that's come out of the data is that when you ask beekeepers, you know, what's killing their bees, they tell you the things that you think, as scientists or as bee inspectors or whatever, there's things that you think are the big issues. And of course, those aren't the issues that tend to make the press, but they are certainly the things that beekeepers tend to report. I'm sure we'll go into that shortly, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's all been very eye-opening to me. And, and I agree with you, you know, these are challenges we can overcome. I don't, I don't mean to belittle this issue. You know, I've been keeping bees for over 30 years now. And, and I tell you, I feel like our industry has gone from one crisis to the next. Mm-hmm. I've seen, at least in my time, Varroa was going to wipe us all out. And then it was small high beetles are going to wipe us all out. And then it was is you know Israeli acute paralysis virus is going to wipe us all out. <laughs> and CCD is going to wipe us all out. But we're still here. And we have more colonies than we did in 2006 when this whole mess started. So, you know, there are ways to address this issue, I think. Right. Sure. We have, and, and we have a lot of... Uh, good resources, I think, working on the issue. Uh, USDA, B-Labs, the land-grant universities like University of Florida, University of Minnesota, NC State, University of Maryland. There is so much uh, good talent, I think, working on the issue with the beekeepers. And I I am certainly uh, not uh, pessimistic about the future of beekeeping. uh, Yeah, and it's funny funny you Yeah, it's funny you say that. You know, when when I got hired, it's funny. I, I was watching it as someone who was a PhD student, and when B faculty would retire, they would just fill their position with some other, someone else. And I was told by more than one B scientist at the time that the University of Florida job would likely be the last of its kind. Right. B scientists were a dying breed, and I, and here we are, 13 years later, and there's probably twice as many B scientists as there were when I got hired. I mean, there are universities who never had B programs, who've invented B programs. And not only that, because I get to travel and involve with, you know, students and postdocs, et cetera, the talent that's behind us, in other words, those of us who are mm-hmm. already, quote, arrived in our position, the talent that's behind us and the number of individuals looking at these issues, it's just incredibly encouraging. I mean, yes, B issues are significant, but we we have people coming people now who can address these issues. And so I'm going to throw, you know, a bomb into the room. One of the things that we need to do to make this possible is we've got to bridge uh, the gap between, at least the perceived gap that I see between beekeepers and scientists. I just feel like there's been this long, you know, held belief that scientists haven't done anything for the industry and the industry doesn't need us and we don't need them. But I I disagree. I feel like the, the, the next great obstacle is to partner with beekeepers to address issues in beekeeping because the talent's there on both sides. Now it's just bridging that gap to make sure we're all working together towards the common good. I agree. And I I think uh, for me, the, the silver lining in the cloud of the CCD was bringing honeybees to the forefront and bringing a lot of talent to the table and bringing it to 
um, the front of people's minds, just average Joe now has a, a bigger appreciation for honeybees. And I think it's, it's also brought an awful lot of new beekeepers to the table. I think a lot of people heard the, 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 the doom and gloom uh, stories and said, well, I'm going to go get in there and save the bees. And it's brought a lot of new beekeepers, which has been interesting. <laughs> what I always tell people is that this issue has put bees, honeybees in people's living room. It and sure almost has. Every, every, <laughs> almost everyone who asks me what I do for a living, when I tell them I'm a bee scientist, nearly without exception, they launch into, well, I've heard the bees are dying. You know, what, what's going on? And, and, it just everyone knows about them now. Whereas right. I always tell people I got into beekeeping before beekeeping was cool. Right. No one knew about <laughs> it back then. And so uh, and so now it's the cool in vogue thing to do and people are jumping into it right and left. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of interest in it right now. Yeah. So I want, I want to back up a little bit. I think, let me see if this is right. I think that when you were working on your PhD, you were working on small hive beetles like that was the big thing when you were kind of coming through and so you were gonna kind of be the the hive beetle expert and then ccd came along and and is that true yeah you know it's funny i when i was looking for graduate programs so just just a little brief history i I did my undergrad at university of georgia where i worked as an undergraduate student in Keith Delaplane's lab. And he's the bee scientist there at University of Georgia, well-known, obviously. And so I worked as his undergraduate worker for four years. And so when I was leaving his lab and trying to consider graduate programs where I could attend, he, you know, helped me consider some options. And a couple of couple of the four or so that I applied to were focused on Varroa. And this one in South Africa was focused on small high beetles. And right at the time I was finishing my undergrad small hive beetles it kind of jumped onto the scene and and that became the issue so i went to south africa to study small hive beetles and for the next oh gosh and for the next 10 or so years they were kind of the big bee story and so that strategic move was very good for me because it, you know i was at the time probably the person who had more referee manuscripts on beetles than than anyone else right. and that really helped you know kind of helped launch my career is part of the reason I'm sure that I'm in Florida because that's where beetles are a problem. Of course, like I said, I got hired in August 2006, and in November 2006, CCD, for lack of a better term, was was born, right. and that radically changed my career. In fact, I've done very little small high beetle research compared to a lot of the other things that I've done since being at Florida because of because of uh, the focus on these bee losses, uh, most of which are unrelated to small hive beetles. Small hive beetles still remain an interest of mine. And of course, as they've spread around the world the last six or eight years, it's kind of reemerged as a topic for scientists outside of the U.S. But um, inside the U.S., there's not, comparatively, there's not a lot of work done on them yeah. uh, anymore. Very good. So let's get to the, to the heart of the matter. So at your, or just before your talk in uh, Hampton Roads in 2018, I was, um, uh, talking to a um a scientist from EPA and he asked me well what are you seeing out there Lewis what's what's going on in uh, in the bee world and i told him what i was seeing uh, the top 3 things that i see as far as the, um challenges to bee health and and then you stood up and basically 
and it, you, you basically finger the three same things. You said them a little differently than I say them, but you basically were on the same page. And and uh, so I I was feeling really good about that. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about uh, the things that you see as the biggest challenges to be health. Sure. So one of the things that I try to do is is you know never in, in, inject my opinion. And so, you know, in my own colonies, in my backyard, I always tell people I'm a hobbyist beekeeper at home and a commercial beekeeper at work. But in my own few colonies back home, you know, I, I rarely lose colonies. And, and my biggest issues without question are, are food and food and varroa. Uh-huh. And when I used to train beekeepers, I, I used to say, you know, if going into the honey flow, you have your diseases controlled and can control your queen issues, you're going to make a lot of honey. And I said a lot of beekeeping boils down to clean issues and, and varroa. And so it was under that guise that I started looking, you know, very closely at the reports published every year by the Bee Informed Partnership. You know, they're the group that out of the University of Maryland that tells us we're losing 40% of our bees every year. Right. Now, they also survey beekeepers, those same beekeepers who report bee losses. They, they will say in the questionnaire for the Bee Informed Partnership, you know, here's what I think is most responsible for the loss of my bees. Well, I looked at that over all the years that those data have been published, and out of every year except one, the same top five stressors were reported by the beekeepers. And they kind of rotated order every year, but those five stressors in no particular order are bad weather, Weak in fall, varroa, nutrition, and queens. And those things would change every year. And the first year, weak in fall was not in there, and CCD was in there. So that's the only year CCD showed up in the top five. So let's let's go again with those five. Weather, weak in fall, queens, varroa, and nutrition. So I want to take two of them off the table quickly. Weather kills bees every year, everywhere. And for everybody, it's different weather. For me in Florida, it might be drought or hurricane. It might be too much rain or too much heat. In the north, it might be too much snow, too much ice. In the west, it might be wildfires created by lightning or so forth. But we all have weather impacts that kill bees. Weather is a chief killer of bees every year. But there's nothing we can do about it, right? I can't in my lab, create a plastic strip that you can hang in your hive and control weather. We're just at the mercy of where we live. So addressing weather really boils down to management. So I'll take that one off the table. The one from the Bee Informed Partnership I'm not so crazy about showing up in the surveys is the next one, which is weak in fall. That simply means colonies are heading into fall weak. Well, to me, that's not a stressor. That's the result of the other stressors. So I always strike it from the discussion. That means when you look at the BIP data, the beekeepers themselves are saying mites, and by mites they mean varroa. They're saying starvation, and by starvation they mean under the umbrella of nutrition, and they're saying poor queens. So the beekeepers are saying varroa, nutrition, and queens are their issues, and all three of those are manageable. Varroa maybe to a lesser extent. But there are management strategies to address all three. Now, I want to go ahead and deal with the elephant in the room quickly, you know, pesticides. Every year, pesticides are six, seven, or eight on that list, somewhere in there. If you cut out hobbyist beekeepers and sideline beekeepers from the data, 
commercial beekeepers end up putting pesticides in the top five. So pesticides certainly play, play a role in bee losses, as do small hive beetles and nosema and viruses and so forth. But essentially, nutrition, varroa, and queen issues are the biggest issues that if we could address our loss rates, in my opinion, would plummet. I agree. Those are the three things that, that I identify as well. And I have to say that as an APR inspector in Western North Carolina, probably 95% of the folks that I deal with are backyard beekeepers. And there's some sideliners and a couple of you know, commercial beekeepers, but the bulk of the folks that I'm dealing with are, are backyard folks between two and 15 or 20 colonies. And so I readily admit that my perspective is skewed, you know, that way. Sure. I have sure. have had some interactions with um, the larger commercial beekeepers. We get to look at them when they come back uh, from almonds. A lot of them, some of them will land in our blueberries down east, and I'll get to look at uh, some of their bees. But especially for the backyard beekeepers, and this is what I tell them at the bee schools or wherever I have a chance, if you can control three things, I tell them, you have to score 80% or better on these three topics. Varroa mites, feeding, and managing queen events. So most of the problems that I see are right there. And when I say most, I, it's 90 to 95%. There are other things that are impacting bees. But these three things I see day in and day out. And... um. You know, I completely agree. You know, I, I, I hate to I hate to do what everybody does is throw out the street cred. You know, I've been keeping bees for 30 years, but in my 30 years of keeping bees, those have always been my biggest issues. I don't think I've ever had a pesticide kill. So, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm not throwing darkness on that. I'm just saying, to put it in perspective, as beekeepers, if we could address those three things, we could we could do a lot to impact bee health. So I feel correspondingly, that that's where a lot of the research needs to focus. We need to address Varroa and give more management strategies. We need to figure out better ways to address queen quality and longevity and productivity. And we need to make sure that our bees aren't starving or that their nutritional requirements are met in the stressful management systems under which we keep them. So I think these are issues worth worth pursuing. I agree. And, and I think... Um... For me, even more training and extension type stuff, um, so beekeepers talk a lot about queen quality. And the thing that I see in my day-to-day -day travels is a lot of times it appears to me that it's not necessarily queen quality with these queen issues, but it could be beekeeper quality. I see a lot of beekeepers mm -hmm. that um, have or had a queen event and never even recognized it, right? So they come out in to inspect their colonies in the middle of July and they have land workers and, you know, and they had a queen event. <laughs> so I, it's not clear to me that that was a poor queen. Uh, they, you know, bees do what bees do. They swarm, and it's up to the beekeeper to kind of recognize uh, when they've had a queen event and and uh, manage it properly. And that can be a tough uh, nut to crack unless you have a lot of experience. And so, you know, 
I, I agree, and I love the way you're referring to it. Again, pre-CCD, when I used to teach beekeepers, I would say, you know, if you can manage your diseases and pests, and you can, I, I would say, clean issues. And under clean issues, I, I have a slide that I usually show that includes swarming, supersedure, poor queens. You know, I love the way you describe it as a queen event. That is exactly what is is the way that it should be described. You know, they're not necessarily bad queens. It's just that there are queen events that people fail to recognize. Now, admittedly, commercial beekeepers are going to recognize a lot right. of these queen events, right? You know, so I think probably this queen issue is probably skewed towards hobbyist responses maybe in the surveys who think they have clean issues when in reality these are clean issues that are addressable. They just didn't recognize the clean event that happened and knew how to remedy it appropriately. It's funny you mentioned extension. Extension, in my opinion, is a key component of this. And, you know, we, you know, me, the me's of the world, we have to do a better job teaching those things. I I, I don't want to, you know, focus too much on the University of Florida here, but that's where I work, right? And so, we, you know, our extension program here is undergoing kind of what I call a radical transformation. Where we're no longer teaching just because someone invited us to come give a fun talk. We're actually trying to change behavior. And, and at our bee colleges, for example, we are focusing heavily on varroa control, addressing nutritional issues, and addressing, recognizing and addressing queen events. Yeah, we can talk about how to make candles and, you know, extract honey. All those are fun. Those are great topics. But if we want to address bee losses and sustainability and bee health, we got to teach beekeepers those things. And so those have really become kind of the big things that we're trying to teach towards because that the evidence, the data suggests those are the things that we need to address to kind of st- to stem these, these losses that we're seeing. Yeah, I agree. So I agree. The extension. <laughs> so the question, though, is a great question, and I haven't come up with the answer here, is how do we get extension to commercial beekeepers? The hobbyists come in droves, right? They read our documents, they watch our videos, they come to our bee colleges, they join our master beekeeper programs. But how do we partner with commercial beekeepers in, in a way that addresses extension needs that they have that may they, they may not even recognize? You know, because they're not necessarily the ones who are reading the documents and watching the videos and listening to the podcast and coming to the bee colleges and joining the master beekeeper programs. So how do we take and partner with them, take this information to them and partner with them to address these larger issues. That, right. that to me, is a topic worth thinking about across, you know, the, the scientists and the industry out there. Yeah, I agree. I, and I guess I feel very lucky as um, an apiary inspector with NCDA. Although our charge is regulatory, I would say that 85% of the work that I do falls under extension type activities, basically helping beekeepers understand best management practices, helping them solve problems. You know, in the spring, I do uh, inspections for permit to sell, you know, looking for American fowl brood. But I think that's probably 15 to 20% of the work that I do. And the other 85 or 80, 85% is really helping folks um, understand those best management practices. And when I can, um, work with commercial beekeepers to help, you know, I love working with guys trying to help them solve problems. And mm-hmm. if I can help them solve a problem, you know, that, that makes it all worthwhile. I really enjoy that, that type of work. Um, so I was, um, I'm hoping that kind of the, the bee informed partnership tech teams, you know, they're working closely with the commercial beekeepers 
and I'm hoping that they can can do some of that work with the commercial guys. Yeah, I agree. I do hope you know, but if you look at them, they they usually work with a few commercial beekeepers. Right. You know, in Florida, we have over 500, and we we no longer have a tech team here. It, you know, they're successful in a lot of places, but but in Florida, it just didn't the, the system just didn't seem to work. So. You know, in addition to tech teams, I think we as, as, as you know, regulators, in your case or in my case, you know, land-grant institutions or USDA labs, et cetera, we, we've got to find a way to work, to, to meet commercial beekeepers where they need us right. to meet them. Yeah. So that's that's going to be at their hives, I think. I don't yeah, think yeah. it's going to be in our workshops. I think it's going to be at their hives. Yeah. Like the tech teams are doing, so. Yeah. So one more thing, well, a couple more things about the, the, the challenges, mites, queen events, um, feeding, uh, you know, you call it nutrition. I, I think the thing that I see among the backyard beekeepers on the feeding side, some of them are feeding entirely too much. <laughs> so they're scared yeah. to death that their bees are going are gonna, to uh, starve to death. And they just feed, 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 and well, they shoot, they feed had, into they a queen of it. <laughs> I was gonna say they, they, you know, they attended some workshop that said you need to feed bees. Right. <laughs> so or the, the when I was new to beekeeping, I did what I heard. Right. You know, so we we really got to teach critical thinking with with regard to. You're right. You know, you could feed into queen events. You can honey bound your colony. You can create a swarm because you're feeding too much. So, yeah, these things go hand in hand. You know, when people feed, they're almost always talking about you know, sugar syrup or corn syrup to make up for lack of carbohydrates and in our case, nectar or honey. But, you know, there are other things kind of broadly that are issues too, like pollen patties. I, I hate to say this is this will get you some hate mail, but <laughs> I have done four or five studies on the commercially available pollen patties and I've yet to make one increase the amount of brood or increase the number of bees in my colonies. Right. <laughs> and I've had, you know, I've, I've almost been run out of meetings and, and, and I still get backlash when we publish papers on this. I'm like, I'm not saying these things they don't work. I'm just saying they've never worked for me. Right. And right. so, you know, what, what place do pollen patties have? How, how do bees use them? Are they universally good when you put them in there? Are the colony's always going to grow? Or are there only specific times that they benefit people? You know, commercial guys I talk to about this, of course, think we're crazy and that, that, that these things do great good for bees. But I've I just never been able to reproduce their success experimentally. So, so the, the moral is not not to stop using these things. Instead, it's we got to know more about it. You know, we you know you can't just throw a patty in there, throw some syrup on a colony, and think that you're addressing their nutritional issues. And I think that there, I think that there, there's a lot of opportunity for research in that in that arena. And I think a lot of it is happening. So I, I, I'm encouraged when I look at the, the research that's coming out. Um, a lot of it is um, related to things that I think are pretty important one number is uh, number one is uh nutrition number two uh one of my big concerns is uh fungicides you know we look at sure uh when i guess when fungicides uh were some of the when some of the fungicides were registered uh you know you put the product active ingredient on the bee or you feed it to the bee and the bee was not affected so you know we assume that things are all good and i think that uh now I think they're doing larval studies. You know, how does this affect sure. uh, the developing bees and seeing that there might be some sure. issues there? So I'm encouraged that yeah, it, that it's funny technology you is coming along. We, yeah, we've done a lot of tox work in the lab, and there's a, a particular fungicide that we 
tested a lot of our tox studies, and uh, it, it routinely is the first or second most toxic compound to, to larvae or, or uh, that we that we test. And the reason I point that out is because it's often more toxic than insecticide. So, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, we my lab has been fortunate to be pioneers in larval research. The methods that existed um, for testing pesticide impacts on larvae just just weren't particularly replicable it's hard to replicate them and 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 get success and we developed a we we modified a method that that's now a really good method it's a method that's being used around the world and we get really great results with it so we spent years kind of in that arena and so yeah i mean pesticides kill bees as i said earlier they do it every year and we need to know more about them and potential synergisms between them and other pest or pathogens but I still believe that our, our biggest issues are related to nutrition, you know, feeding what you say and Varroa and, and queen events. Yeah. And just, I just want to follow up with uh, Varroa and which is by far, I think the biggest challenge to bee health. And it's not, um, again, that's not an easy nut to crack. I, um, mm-hmm. I guess my, my message to beekeepers is that simply, Applying a miticide does not mean that you fix the problem, and mm-hmm. it really is important to have a uh, robust management plan that includes a lot of monitoring. So I talked to a lot of beekeepers mm-hmm. that said, I treated my bees, but they still died over the winter. It, it wasn't mites, and sure. they don't have any monitoring information, so they don't know if they treated in time. They don't know if their treatment was effective. They don't know, you know, if the mites um, spiked back up. And that's the thing that I see that I think could really make a difference uh, when we're when we're making uh, Varroa management decisions. I, I just feel like there's not enough monitoring going on. I, I agree. And it's hard. You know, there's a lot of beekeepers who simply flat out don't do it. A lot of them say that, you know, I, the typical response that I get, especially, you know, kind of from commercial industry is, is, you know, we only have a few windows throughout the year that we can treat, right? There's honey coming in here. We've got to move for pollination there. We're only accessing our colonies at this point. As a result, we have to treat kind of robotically these three or four, six or eight times a year because we monitoring is useless to us. We you know, if something, if we fail to treat now, we don't have another window for three months. But I agree with you on the point that we really don't know if our treatments even work unless you do follow-up monitoring. And I think some of the research is showing just because you put something in the hive and took it out and follow the label, that doesn't mean you got 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90% control of Varroa. And even if you did, Varroa populations rebound so quickly that, that a month later, you may need another treatment. Uh, this this is Jamie opinion or feeling and not Jamie fact. So I just need to throw this out there, but my gut tells me we don't treat enough for Varroa. Um, I, you know, when I first started, we were kind of robotically telling people treat in February, treat in August, treat in spring, treat in fall, treat in spring, treat in fall, two treatments. That's all you need. But you know, you talk to successful commercial beekeepers and some of those guys and, and gals are treating six to eight times a year. They're, if they're monitoring, they're showing that their numbers are getting to those critical thresholds three to eight times a year. And so for those of us who are treating once or twice, we just may not be doing it enough. We may not be keeping up with the varroa populations. And, or if we're using things that have low efficacy, 
for sure we may not be doing it enough. You know, oxalic acid is wildly popular at the moment. It's a great compound, but it's really only effective if you've got no brood in the hive. But people are treating it throughout the year. So, uh, you know, is it effective if you did it in spring? Is it effective if you did it in July? The, the point being that, you know, we, we, want, we all want to use softer compounds, but that means we're, we have to accept lower efficacy and the need to use those things more. And you don't know any of this stuff if you're not monitoring. So, yeah, you know, we need to do better with varroa control. When, when, when people email me or call me with a long story about their bees dying and they tell me all the reasons it's not varroa, I will ask them, what, what did they use and when did they last monitor? And if they fail to be able to tell me an answer to one or both of those questions, then I don't care what comes out of my mouth, what's in my head is that Varroa killed their bees. Right. Now, they'll try to convince me that Varroa didn't kill their bees and all the reasons Varroa didn't kill their bees. But in my mind, Varroa is the most likely cause most of the time. I agree. And I've, um, I've kind of given up the message of you have to treat because I can get a lot of pushback from, from that message especially from new beekeepers. So I said, look, I don't care if you treat, but what you do have to do is monitor so that you know what's going on. Um, I agree, yep. And so even uh, especially like a, a treatment-free beekeeper, I understand you're not going to apply a minocide, um, but please monitor so you can see uh, what's going on. Or if you're if you're trying to breed um, a varroa resistant bee. Let's do some monitoring so it can help you with your selection process. You know, I, sure. I can't, um, I have not heard a reasonable, uh, argument to not monitor. Sure. <laughs> so sure, I, I agree. <laughs> uh, you know, the one that's usually thrown, the one that's usually thrown back at me is, you know, I know when I need to treat or my varroa aren't that bad, or I just don't have time to monitor or, like I said, often it comes at me from, from the commercial side, which is we only have windows. We only have these windows. And failure to treat during those windows means we won't get another window. So why monitor is kind, yeah, of, the, yeah. kind of the response. And, th- and there's probably something to that. I mean, I, yeah, know, I, mean, I get the, it. The, <laughs> yeah, the beekeepers are the ones living on the ground with this thing. So uh, I don't doubt what they're saying at all. Right. I get it. It's a, but I mean, I, it's a tough nut to crack. There's no doubt about it. it mm-hmm. It's it's a it's sure. a hard challenge, but I just don't feel like uh, we're gonna make up too much headway unless we're doing a lot of monitoring. <laughs> I mean, I think we'd sure. see uh, the, the picture would be a lot clearer, or, and these mysterious um, collapses wouldn't be so mysterious if we had this monitoring data. But sure. Um. So you touched on your, your pollen uh, substitute research. A lot of people ask me uh, about, uh, you know, when, when should they apply a, a pollen substitute? And my, the first, my first uh, uh, reaction to that is there is no substitute for fresh pollen. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> so what have you seen in your research? 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm probably the wrong one to ask because we we never make them work. So I also <laughs> have the same question, which is when when is the right time? However, our strongest critics always tell me that these things are the best uh, when used um, when you've got low quality pollen coming in, mm-hmm. right? So in my case, that might be June or July when the only available pollen is grass pollen because there's nothing else available in the area, or when there's no pollen coming in and for us here uh, where i live here in florida is about now and and since this is a podcast now being about early december right um so i hear that i I appreciate that the beekeepers who claim that they get the most out of pollen patties are the ones who you know there's no or low pollen coming in and they're just trying to get their bees that extra boost or uh, that's the comment that I regularly hear. I, I know that in my own case, as a hobbyist at home, I've never in my life put a pollen supplement on my colonies. I've never believed I've seen a reason to do it. However, if I was trying to beef up a thousand colonies and get them ready for almonds at a time of year where there's not much pollen available, I might find that that's necessary. Um, that's that's a question that we're going to be trying to address uh, more and more here out of my lab because it's a it's a topic that I think we need to address. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I can see uh, if uh, a commercial beekeeper that has um, 200 or more colonies sitting in one yard, uh, there can certainly be uh, a lack of pollen in the neighborhood, and that, that you know, so you may need a little something there. But for the backyard beekeeper. Um, who's just producing honey. I, I, I see beekeepers, you know, feeding pollen through the winter and just like they feed too much sugar syrup, sugar syrup, they'll feed their colony right into a swarm situation in February and there goes the honey production. Sure. So it is sure. uh, important sure. to understand, um, to have a plan when you're, when you're doing stuff mm-hmm. like that. Anyway, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ellis. We've covered a lot of ground today. I still, there's still more that we could, uh, we could cover uh, before uh, you cut out. Um, I understand you guys may be putting together a, a podcast there at the University of Florida. Sure, I, I can tell you just very briefly about our extension. You know, we we have a lot of ways that we try to get information out to beekeepers. I personally speak at bee clubs, you know, around the U.S. and all around the world, and uh, we answer emails, etc. Um, I happen to be the new um, classroom author for the American Bee Journal. Really? So, so you, you know, yeah, you know, Jerry Hayes, a close friend of mine is now the, the editor of Bee Culture. Yes. So when he, when he moved on, um, Eugene from the editor from the American Bee Journal asked me to consider taking over the classroom. So as of January, 2020, I'll be the one answering oh, the questions. Oh, that's great so news. People can submit questions that way. Um, but also my team and I have a website, ufhoneybee.com, where beekeepers can click on beekeeper resources and find a lot of information. We're pretty active on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. At the, um, you can find us at UF Honeybee Lab. And back to what you just said earlier, yes, we have in fact started our own podcast. We've already filmed quite a few episodes, and we're going to kind of mass release those at the beginning of the year. And our podcast is called Two, Two Bees in a Pod. So where <laughs> we are at the moment, again, is people can find us at UFHoneybee.com or at UF Honeybee Lab, our various social media accounts, or through our podcast will be coming in early 2020, two bees in a pod. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I, I hope I hope this is a success. I know beekeepers 
want to hear this and, and, and definitely want to um, improve. And I think we can all do that together. Well, I sure do appreciate your uh, help this morning. So take care, Dr. Ellis. I appreciate it. Thank you now. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That wraps up our first episode of the Well-Managed Hive. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Dr. Ellis, and I hope you'll share this podcast with your friends. Any comments? Leave me a message at 919-593-4823, and I'll do my best. Join me next week when my guest will be Dr. Gloria DeGrande Hoffman from the USDA B Lab in Tucson, Arizona. Hope to see you there.